You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. I was going to bring, and I forgot in the hustle and bustle of getting here this morning, was going to bring a a little mug that I have. I think it was a gag gift from my sister, but it has a picture of me on it uh, as like a 10-year-old kid with all tussled hair and all this stuff, just one of those goofy pictures, and it's a mug, and so uh, it's one of the ones that I grab every morning and drink coffee out of, and our our daughter, Bianca, we just brought her home from Haiti, so she's still learning the family, learning the language, and she points at it all the time when I have it, and she's confused because she's convinced it's Micah. She looks at it, she's convinced, Micah, Micah, and we just cannot seem to communicate to her. I know that's me, but that's, you know, a long time ago, 30 years ago. And uh, and so she's just convinced every time she sees that mug that it's Micah's and that it belongs to Micah. And it's because he has a, there's a family resemblance there. When you look at it, you see and you think, oh, that looks like Micah. And uh, we're going to see a little bit of that same thing in Genesis chapter 26, because we're going to get a summary, a one chapter summary of the life of Isaac. As we've been journeying through Genesis, we've been spending the last 12 or so chapters um, with this character named Abraham, whom God just selected out of nowhere uh, to be the keeper of the promise, the one who would who would become a great nation, the blessing, the redeem, the redemption of the whole world would come through this one man and his wife. And then Abraham journeys with God for many decades before the promise comes to fruition, and that promise is the miraculous birth of, birth of Isaac. Well. Abraham and Sarah have now moved off the scene. They have passed away. We've looked at that. And now Isaac and his new wife, Rebecca, are off to a very sweet start in their relationship with each other. And they're now the carriers on of the promise. Um, We we saw last week in chapter 25 uh, that they waited a long time for them to have children because the promise is, is part of the lineage of procreation and these this promise traveling from generation to generation and lo and behold they end up having twins and these twins tossle within her they they rival and God gives an oracle God gives a prophecy that one is going to serve the other and the younger is actually going to be the one who carries on the promise and so then that brings us to chapter 26 and what we have is we have um, we have uh, Isaac really his whole life. We get all of these chapters on Abraham, and Isaac's life is essentially summarized in just this one 34-verse chapter, just like 70, 80, 90 years of his life summarized right here. So Moses, the author of this under the inspiration of the, of the Spirit, felt like he could go ahead and condense this, and then the story is going to move on to Jacob, and really the rest of Genesis is looking at Jacob and his sons. So it's really interesting that we've been waiting so long to learn about this Isaac, and then he plays such a short part of the story. It's almost like he's just a bridge to get to Jacob and his sons. And so we're going to look at that today. Um, uh, I'm going to go ahead and give you sort of the bottom line of these two chapters. I'm calling, titling this sermon, The Rise and Fall of Isaac. It's a little different in your bulletin because I changed the title after the bulletins were printed. So you get two titles today for the price of one. All right. Yeah, just free. Um, so, so I'm just going to give you the bottom line because we're going to cover a lot of ground. Uh, but basically in chapter 23, we see Isaac's fa- family resemblance. You're going to notice as we go through this, that this looks like a repeat of Abraham. This is like Abraham 2.0. Some of the same struggles, but the same promise and provision from God as well in chapter 26. And in the bottom line there is that God's promises and presence protect and prosper. All right, that's all P's. It just worked out that way and I went with it. All right, God's promises and presence protect and prosper. That was true with Abraham. We're going to see that God is still the same God of Isaac. And that same promise and prosperity moves down to his son. And it continues. God continues to be faithful generation after generation. 
In chapter 26, we're going to see Isaac's family dysfunction. The whole family just completely implodes. And the bottom line for that will be that God's purposes and providence prevail and proceed. All right? I just went with it. All right? I'm not, I don't always do the alliteration thing, but it just worked out. That God's purposes and providences prevail and proceed. No matter how dysfunctional the family is, even the family of God, God still accomplishes his plan through dysfunctional families and people. All right? So now you kind of know the target we're trying to hit. Let's walk through the scriptures together here. We see in chapter 26, this like highlights of Isaac's life. Again, we're covering uh, most of his life here in one chapter. And it comes in five scenes. It's almost like Isaac's greatest hits. We see in verses 1 through 5, famine and promise. And then we're going to look at 6 through 11, failure and correction. 12 through 22, prosperity and conflict. 23 through 25, we have promise again and worship. And then we have a truce, a covenant that comes to fruition at the end of the chapter. And then a little tag about Esau going into chapter 27 and the dysfunction in that chapter. So let's walk through it. Let's look at faith and promise, verses 1 through 5. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all of the lands, all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. And I will give your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So here we go. Abraham, or Isaac, is now walking with God. And God gives him essentially the same promise. We see this same famine that happened in Genesis chapter 12 is happening again. The Israel is not a place that gets consistent rain. So you're going to see famines come up again and again as a test for God's people. Uh, a lack of rain, a lack of prosperity. There, Israel is a place where you really are dependent very much on God. And here again, we see the people of God having to trust God through a famine. So this looks a whole lot like chapter 12 where God gave this promise to Abraham. And then a famine comes and tests. Now Abraham went down to Egypt and there he tried to almost give his wife away pretending that he was her sister she was his sister and and God speaks to Isaac and says don't do that don't do what your father did I want you to trust me here he's in the land of the Philistines and he has these interactions with Abimelech well, you remember Abimelech was someone that Abraham dealt with this is probably just a title probably not the same guy because this is a hundred years later or so Abimelech's probably a title it actually means my father is king so they're dealing with the the leader of the Philistines and God, just notice in those first verses, verse 3, how many times God says the word, I will. This promise that he gives to Isaac is the same promise he gave to Abraham. The deal is still on. The promise is still in force. The blessing is still here. And it's something God is going to do. Six times God says, I will. I will be with you. I will bless you. I will give these lands to you. I will establish the oath. I will multiply your offspring. I will give you offspring in these lands. So this is something God is going to do. Isaac does not have to earn it. God is, or Isaac is called to obey God. But the work and redemption of God is going to be something that God does for Isaac through Isaac. So God is the initiator. Isaac is to be the responder. Look at verses 6 through 11. Failure and correction. So Isaac settled in Gerar. He obeyed the word of the Lord. 
when the men of the place asked him about his wife, because if you remember, Rebecca is known for her beauty, her beauty, he said, she is my sister. Uh -oh. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, so this ruse was something they kept up for a while, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. And then could you say, How then could you say, She is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man and his wife shall surely put to death. So this is probably backing up a little bit from chapter 25. Because in chapter 25, we see that, um, that Rebecca gives birth to this set of twins. So this scene is probably going back in time a little bit, because obviously if she's got a couple kids hanging around, then she probably is already belongs to some other man. And so this is probably uh, out of timeline a little bit. But you see, again, Isaac is a lot like his father. Except, I, you know, Abraham, actually, his wife was his half-sister. So he was only kind of lying. Now Isaac is just straight up lying. She is not his sister. But he's prone to the same kind of sins and fears of his father. There's sort of a family resemblance. It's like we're reading this story all over again. And Abimelech notices looking out the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah. Isaac's name means laughing, so this is a bit of a play on words. Isaac's laughing with his wife. And it's not like he just told her a joke and she's laughing. This is the kind of laughing that Abimelech's like, hey, siblings don't laugh like that. This is the kind of thing of going, oh, you guys are like together. You're married, right? So it's, it's a euphemism um, for their relationship together. And Abimelech is the one who's the, who calls them out. Uh, this, uh, this, this seems to be a re repeated frame, refrain again. Isaac sort of fails his wife, makes her vulnerable, makes her take the heat, puts her at risk, which we see in Adam. Adam fails Eve, does he not? Genesis 3. Abraham fails Sarah twice in this same way Isaac. It's just part of the sin nature that's been passed down is that men do not always stick up for and protect as they ought. And women are often left vulnerable in ways that uh, is not, uh, not good. And so what's interesting, though, is Abimelech is the one with a conscience here. He's the one that calls Isaac out and going, what you have done is wrong. That's a sorry state of affairs when it's the world calling out the people of God on their conduct. But that's the case. And God does do that. Sometimes, even those who don't aren't worshipers of God can see what the people of God are doing and say, this is not right. And yet, miraculously, God works Isaac's own failure for his own protection. So now he's actually protected. Under threat of death, don't touch this family. Don't touch his wife. Don't come near. Don't do anything inappropriate. So even in his sin, God works it for his good and his protection in the land, which is just speaking to the graciousness of God, just the kindness of God to his promise and to his people. Look at verses 12 through 22, prosperity and conflict. Okay, so let's just see how Isaac, how this goes. We're sort of fast-forwarding a bit here. Isaac sowed in the land. Remember, we're in the middle of famine. He sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. That is ridiculous. In the middle of a famine, he reaps a hundredfold and look who it gives the credit. The Lord blessed him, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Abraham. The Lord blessed him. 
And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. This is a supernatural provision of God in the midst of famine that Isaac is having a bumper year. He's having the best year that anyone has ever seen. Verse 14, he had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. They envied him. They were jealous of him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servant had dug in the land in the days of Abraham his father. So all of that good that Abraham had done for his own flocks and really for the, for the people, the blessing that Abraham had been even to his neighbors, they stopped that up. They broke those down. And so here's what happens, verse 16. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. So there's this redemptive work that Isaac's doing. He's bringing this blessing that had been stopped by the ungodly Philistines that Abraham had brought to the land. And in famine, they're so vindictive that they're covering up the wells. And he's going and he's reclaiming them. Which shows that he, you know, and he's giving them the names that his father gave them. Which shows that he believes that this is the promised land. This land belongs to them. This well belongs to them. But yet it's to be a blessing to all of them. The Philistines had stopped them after the death of Abraham, and he gave the names that his father had gave them. And when Isaac's servant dug in the valley and found a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen and said, The water is ours. So he called the name of the, of the well Essek, or, yeah, Essek, and because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved on from there and dug another well. And they did not quarrel over it. And so he called its name Rohoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Man, Isaac, everything he touches just turns to gold, right? In the middle of a famine, everybody's struggling, and God is blessing him. His flocks, his servants, everything's multiplying. And everywhere he digs, he finds water. And then every time he gets sort of chased off of that spot, and he doesn't get frustrated, he just continues to be redemptive. He continues to do this good work. And even his enemies are being blessed by him. It's fascinating that sort of in a small way the promise is coming true that you'll be a blessing to all nations. Even his enemies are benefiting from water. That He digs a well, finds water, and they come and they steal it, and he moves on, and it's just everywhere he goes there's flourishing and blessing, and he just patiently endures. Keeps finding water, keeps getting looted, keeps being blessed. Verses 23 through 25, promise and worship. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father. Fear not, for I am with you. You can imagine Isaac might be getting a bit frustrated. These Philistines are just continuing to nip at his heels, and God appears and reaffirms his promise. And he starts with this, Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you, and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And Isaac's servants dug a well. Just an act of faith again and again to dig a well, to build an altar as in response to God's faithfulness. God kindly encourages him, reminds him of the legacy that he has received, that he's to carry on, that he's to build upon. Isaac responds in worship. You'll notice that the pagans, they build altars in order to try to get the gods to do something. The people of God do something different. 
It is in response to what God has done that they worship. The pagans have to sort of pay the fee to get their God's blessing. But Israel's God, Jacob's God, Isaac's God, Abraham's God, he just blesses and then they respond in worship. Worship is not something to get something from God, but a enjoyment, a thanksgiving, a praise that God gives his grace freely. So just notice that throughout the text, that building altars in worship is always in a response to God's initiative to us. It's true when we come in here. We're not coming here to worship in order to gain God's favor or to get points. We come here because he offers it freely and we've received it and we rejoice. And so we see that worship is always a grateful response to grace given, not in reverse like the pagan nations have to do with their gods. Verses 23 through 26, a truce is reached. Eventually the Philistines just go, we're not going to win. Every time we try to take the guy's water, he goes and finds more water. And so they finally just go, okay, we're tired. Look at this, verse 26. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzoth, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of the army, that name probably reminds you previously, probably also a title, general. Isaac said to them, why have you come to me seeing that you hate me and you have sent me away from you? Uh, So Isaac's frustrated. And they said to him, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let us, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm. So as, so as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good, which is not exactly true, but, and have sent you away in peace, you are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and they drank. In the morning, they rose early and exchanged oaths and Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Beersheba or Beersheba will continue to play an important, it'll be an important marker throughout the rest of the script, uh, through the rest of the Old Testament. So here we go. The, The Philistines, what do they notice about him? They notice that God is with him. Look at the past, present, and future. In verse in verse 3, God promises, I will be with you. Future tense. In verse 23, 24, I am with you. Present tense. And then in verse 28, we see that God has been with you. So past, present, future, God is always present with his people. He's always present with them to bless them, to protect them. Isaac, through the ups and downs of everything. Abraham, through the ups and downs of everything. God has always been with him. That is the ultimate promise of God, is being in his presence, to be with him, to be in right relationship with him. And even these pagans now go, hey, you have God with you, and so we're done trying to fight you. Can we have peace? He's known. Isaac is known as a person who is identified with the presence of God. Not through any anything great in him, but just because God has set his affection upon Isaac. And then we get in verses 34 and 35, this little lead in. It really ties chapter 25, where Esau and Jacob, um, Jacob steals Esau's birthright. Esau sells it for a bowl of soup, a bowl of red, red, I think is what it's called, right? And, uh, and so that now that theme is being picked up and you go, this is the kind of man Esau is. So look at verse 34 and 35. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, 
the daughter of Biri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So again, we see the character of Esau, that he has no regard for God. He takes for himself not one, but two wives who are of under the curse, who are under the curse of Canaan, Canaan's son Het, the Hittites. So again, we see that, that Esau not only has no regard for God and the promise, but he's actually marrying not one, but two. He's a polygamist even, just piling on disobedience and defiance against God and bringing damage to his own family. This seems to indicate that he's going against the wishes of his family, which shows you all the more that Esau has no regard for God, either with the blessing selling it for a bowl of soup, and as we go into chapter 27, we're going to see that Esau continues to show that he has a heart that is hard and defiant against God. So a few applications from chapter 26 before we get into the wild ride that chapter 27 is. Three quick things. Application. Parents pass both good and bad things unto their children. Is that true? It's true. You know that to be true, right? Parents pass both good and bad things onto their children. You see that in Abraham. How many times throughout this chapter do you see Isaac being told by God that I'm going to bless you because of Abraham? There is this legacy of faith that your father has walked out. And I am going to bless you because I made a promise to him. And so there's things that Isaac now has sort of in his backpack because his father walked with God. And that's a huge blessing. And God is calling Isaac to build on that. Don't take that for granted. Don't squander the great spiritual legacy that you've been given. The same relationship that I had with your father, I now want to have with you. And you get to start kind of a step ahead of Abraham. Because Abraham had 75 years of not even knowing who God was. Isaac has known it since before he was even born, knowing that he had a relationship with God, that God had a special plan for him. And so there is this great blessing of faithfulness that Isaac is responsible to acknowledge and honor and build upon. So kids, your parents bring you to church and they're demonstrating a faithfulness to God's word that is a real gift. There are some in this room that did not grow up in a family of faith and they so wish they had the privilege that you had and you have a great blessing that God is going to call you to build upon in terms of your family legacy. But we must be honest that not all the things we get from our parents are good. This is why we let Micah have his hair kind of shaggy, because there's going to come a day in his early 20s when it starts to decide it's going to go. My father, me, him, male pattern baldness is something I've given to my kids. Probably we'll find out. But we don't all. But you see that in you see that in Isaac that he has the same sinful inclinations of his father that he still has this fear of the fact that he has this wife that he needs to sort of protect himself and not protect her. He got that same sinful inclination. His dad did it twice. Fortunately, he only did it once. But still, I think that's going to play a massive role in how broken their marriage ends up being in chapter 27 is because he had this also the same inclination. You've heard of stories of a father who leaves the family and, uh, and runs off with another woman and totally devastates his kids. And then the kids grow up, I'll never be like my dad. And then they grow up and then they end up doing the same thing, right? These family sins. And I think we need to be honest about those. 
there's a propensity that we have probably inherited from our parents to particular sins and dispositions, and we need to be honest about those. So we need to realize that both good and bad things have been passed on to our parents, and it hasn't been all the same for us, but we need to process those. You need to find a godly person to help you process both the good and the bad, to repent of those things that you've inherited, and to make sure they stop with you and don't pass on to your kids, to stop in its tracks some of those family sins, but also let those blessings, don't let the honor and glory of being a family that walks with God stop with you. May that continue and be built upon with your family. We see, number two, both failures and faithfulness of God's people are noticed by the world. You see Abimelech? You see Abimelech calling out Isaac, of going, you're not being faithful to marriage, to your wife, to your family. And he feels the right to call him out on that, and he does. Right? So they, the world sees when we're being hypocrites. And it's hard to see God when the Christians aren't walking what they're talking. But then also later in the chapter, Isaac's faithfulness is clear. We continue to hound you, yet you continue to be gracious. You continue to dig these wells. You continue to be a blessing to us, even though we've been nipping at your heels. And we know that God has been with you. And we're tired of resisting that. We want a truce. Both the failures and the faithfulness of God's people are noticed by the world. We just need to keep that in mind. The way we act and the way we... We are witnesses. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. It's just a matter of whether we'll be good witnesses or bad ones, right? If we claim the name of Christ, we are witnesses. Both our failures and our faithfulness are noticed by the world. So, could verse 27 be said of you? We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. That's ultimately their assessment of Isaac. Clearly God's with you. And we just are tired of fighting that. Could that be said of you? By the people you work with, your family members? Man, it's just clear that you walk with God. We're not even sure we believe in that God. But it's clear that God is with you. And then lastly, God extends his promises and presence to you through Christ. Again, this Isaac is marked by the presence of God. I am with you. I will be with you. God has been with you. And for those of us today, God continues to offer his presence to us through a relationship with Jesus Christ. The new covenant is even better and fuller than this old covenant. We were banished from his blessing and his presence when Adam and Eve sinned against him, and we've all been born into that same sin, alienated from God. And yet God pursued us like he did Abraham and Isaac. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be, with a, to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. God sent his presence. He didn't send a YouTube video. He didn't send a note. He sent himself so that he could be with us, that we could touch him and feel him and know him. He came in person, and he died on the cross for our sins, killing the hostility, bearing the wrath, opening up the way to promise and presence of God, the fulfillment of all these things that are promised to Isaac. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Even Jesus' promise to his believers through his spirit is that he will be with them. His presence, his presence, his presence. You know what makes heaven heaven is God is there. It's God is there. The removal of sin, that's a side. The fact that you get reunited with people you love, that's a side benefit. The thing that makes heaven heaven is that we are with God. With God. And that only comes through Jesus Christ. God initiates and we respond. God initiated with Abraham and Sarah and they responded in active, lifelong faith. God initiated with Isaac and he responded in faith. God already declared back in chapter 25 his initiative with Jacob. And Jacob will ultimately, although it's going to be a bit of a journey for a few chapters, will ultimately 
follow in faith. And that same offer is on the table to us through Jesus Christ to be in the presence of God, rightly related to him, claiming his promises through trusting in the death, resurrection, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we can be brought into these promises. And then we get the privilege of going and unstopping wells. We get the privilege of going and being a blessing to all the nations. And even if we get hounded, we continue to have grace. We continue to be a blessing even with a world that's hostile towards us. So much we can learn from chapter 26 about walking with God, the ups and downs, what, dis, what family dynamics go on, which brings us to chapter 27, which is family dysfunction. In the midst of this family dysfunction, God's purposes and providence will still prevail and proceed. You'll see that. Regardless of how jacked up these four people are, it gets really crazy now. As the story now begins to move and focus in on Jacob, Isaac's life is basically done by the end of chapter 27. That's it. And it'll pick up with Jacob, and here we see sort of how that takes place. So here in chapter 27, we have six conversations, six one-on-one conversations. Uh, this would make a great play, actually. You know, you got these two happen, and the curtain falls, you got these two happen, and you just got this back and forth as the spotlight kind of hits these six different one-on-one conversations. Let's look at the first one, Isaac and Esau, chapter 27, verses 1 through 4. When Isaac was old, his eyes were dim, so that he could no longer see. He called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son, and he said, here I am. He said, behold, I am old. I know, dad, you look old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Okay, this is shocking. This is shocking. Isaac thinks he's on his deathbed. He's actually going to live quite a bit longer, but he thinks, okay, this is it. And I am pretty sure that he knows about the prophecy that has been given to Rebekah decades before, as the babies were wrestling in his womb and they were praying, God spoke to Rebekah and said, the younger will serve the older. God was very clear on which of those two sons the promise would rest. Isaac, I'm convinced, knows this. And I don't think that it's hidden from anybody that Esau also sold his birthright to Jacob. Like We don't have anything in the text, but it seems like that was public enough that this is clear decades later and Esau, I'm sorry, Isaac is defiantly going to go against God because Esau is his favorite. He is going to, with all of his might, try to direct the providence of God in the direction that he wants it to go. And notice how enslaved Isaac is in this passage to his appetites, to his five senses. And all of them will deceive him in this passage. By this point in Isaac's life, he is living only by his senses. And Esau is his favorite because Esau brings food he likes. That's why it says that he favors Esau. is because Esau cooks food the way he likes it. This is very dysfunctional. This is a very dysfunctional family. This is a very dysfunctional father. And notice what he says at the end of verse 4. Bring me the meal so that I may eat it, that my soul may bless you before I die. I am willing, Esau, to trade the blessing for food. What does that sound like? Esau traded that blessing 
for food. Like father, like son. We see this family resemblance. Isaac wants to direct the plan of God against his word because he loves food. He knows this oracle that was said in chapter 25. If it is thus, why is this happening to me? Rebekah cries out to God, and the Lord said, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Isaac knows that Esau foolishly sold his birthright for stew. In verse 34, Isaac knows that Esau has defied God and the family by marrying not one but two Hittite women. Isaac is blatantly defying God, blessing sin, dishonoring his wife, and denying the son of promise, Jacob. Why? Because he loves food. He's trading blessing for food. So pay close attention to these five senses. He's going to be guided by his senses, guided by his appetites, and they're all going to betray him. He's going to choose what he can see and taste and hear more than trusting in God. So, here we go. So Esau goes off to go hunting. Jacob's in the tent, or Isaac's in the tent. Here we have conversation number two. Now, Rebecca was listening. I assume it's easy to hear through tents. Not a lot of privacy. Rebecca is eavesdropping. And Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. Now, when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless it before the uh, and bless you before the day that I die. I just totally read that wrong. Before the Lord, before I die. Verse 8. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two young goats that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. Okay, so she's going to go. I can create a meal that's going to taste just like he wants. And she commands her son. She uses her motherly influence to bring this deceptive plan to Jacob. Um, verse 10, and you shall bring to your father to eat that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am a smooth man. We, we don't feel the same. And you know how dad is. You know how dad is. He's going he's gonna to feel my arms. He's going to feel my neck. He's going to realize that I haven't been able to grow a mustache my entire life, and we don't even know what Esau even really looks like. He just is a furry man. Mom, this isn't going to work. Verse 12, perhaps my father will feel me and see and shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. Jacob gets a bad rap in this, but he's actually resistant to this. He eventually goes along. He's not innocent in this, but let's just keep in mind, this is Rebecca pushing this on him. Verse, seven, verse 13, his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go and bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older brother, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck, and she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. All right, so now we have conflict, right? Isaac is going against the plan of God. Rebecca is going to try to make this thing happen by her own deceptions. 
um, and Jacob is uh, is part of this thing. Jacob gets a bad rap for this whole episode. He's not the originator of the idea. He's hesitant at first, but he eventually goes along. He is a bit of a swindler, so this fits. But now we see kind of where Jacob gets it, right? His mom's a little bit devious, clever in this way. And just think of how far this marriage has declined. Remember how sweet it was in chapter 24 when they met? How proper and godly everyone was. And now we're a few decades down the road. And uh, it's not so sweet anymore. Rebecca never crosses her mind to pray about this situation. That her husband is going against the will of God. The word of God. She never in her mind enters her mind that she would have the ability to approach him and appeal to him on the basis of godliness. She knows she has to trick him, which says something about both him and her, right? That that's not the kind of marriage they have anymore. And their relationship is God with God is such that Isaac never considers to think and pray about God before giving the blessing, what God's will would be. Nor does Rebecca. Rebecca knows the right thing to do, but she's going to do it her way instead of trusting the Lord. So this marriage is, uh, is a mess. This family is a mess. Esau doesn't honor God, and Jacob's kind of a swindler. No trust, no communication, no prayer, deception, manipulation. And these are the people of God. This dysfunctional family is falling apart. Conversation number three. Isaac and Jacob, verses 18 through 29. So he went in to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Isaac's already suspicious, right? Nobody trusts anybody in this family. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. This blasphemy. He's bringing God into this. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac his father, who felt him, and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He said, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near and ate, and he brought him wine and he drank. And his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. And said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and, the, and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. And Isaac is satisfied. He's, had, he's got a belly full of meat. He has successfully passed the blessing on to his favored son Esau. And all is well. Who's the good guy in the story? You don't have anybody good, do you? Jacob lies, verse 19, blasphemes in verse 20, and steals. Now, 
Let me mess with the picture in your head for just a moment. When you picture this story, how old do you picture these people? I think we tend to probably picture Jacob and Esau as maybe teenagers, early 20s, something, right? Everyone that I talk to believes or read um, seems to think that Isaac is around 137 years old. He had Jacob and Esau when he was 60. So Jacob and Esau are how old? 77. So this is not a couple of kids who, you know, made some mistakes in high school, had some wild years in their 20s. We're talking about established men who are playing this ridiculous game. They have really, they really are who they are, right? This is, this is a mess. The blessing sounds like the oracle to Rebekah, almost word for word if you go back to chapter 25. Isaac knows that the blessing is supposed to go to the younger son. And nope, I am determined, because of my appetites, to go against that, against my wife, against God, against Jacob, and towards Esau. I don't care how ungodly Esau is. He is going to be the one that the blessing goes through God. Just assertive to make that happen. Conversation number four, Isaac and Esau. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, then Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of his father Isaac. Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to him, my fa- let my father r- arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Esau trembled very violently and said, Who is it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. I think he is under tremendous conviction at this point. God thwarted my plan. So this violent trembling doesn't seem to be any anger towards Jacob. It is realizing that the light of God is now shined upon him. He has been found out. And God went ahead and accomplished his purposes even through this. He shakes violently, and I think you almost get a sense of almost repentance here. Yes, and he shall be blessed. I'm not reversing this. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. Continue to defy God, father. I want you to repent, father. And he said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, he has taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him Lord over you and all his brothers. I have given to him your first servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me even also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, 
he shall break, you shall break his yoke from your neck. And look at verse 41. Look at Esau. Look at his response to this. His response is not sackcloth and ashes before God. His response is not the Lord's will be done. His response is now Jacob, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning of my father are approaching and then I will kill my brother Jacob. Again, Isaac's shaking violently, I think is because of conviction before God. He could not hide from God. And he then acknowledges yes and shall be blessed and then continues to do the right thing from there. Despite the tearful call of Esau for his father to repent against God, Isaac refuses and gives a lesser blessing, actually almost like a curse there, reaffirming what God had said in the oracle. Isaac, in the end, gets it right. We get the interpretation of this passage in Hebrews 12, 15 through 17. See to it that no one fails to attain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness, that's what Esau is marked by, is bitterness against God, against his father, against Jacob. He doesn't care about the plan of God. He's angry. And all of this has happened to him is somebody else's fault. Esau never takes responsibility for his sin. Let no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble. By it, many have been defiled. Let no one, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Took two Hittite women, and in the next chapter, he's going to take an Ishmaelite woman. Just continues to pile up wives. No repentance, no conviction. It's always someone else's fault. Who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, back when he sold the soup, his dad didn't have a lot of stuff. So who cares? Now dad has a lot of stuff. So I would like to have his stuff now. Esau is always just thinking about his appetites. And so now when all of a sudden he's like, oh, I'd like to reverse that, he can't. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit a blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, even though he sought it, the blessing, with tears. But those were tears of bitterness and anger and rage, not tears of repentance. Not one time does Esau ever admit that he has done anything wrong. And the warning is, don't be like him. Esau has been on a consistent, uninterrupted trajectory of rebellion against God. He would even rather kill his brother than turn to God, like Cain, like Ishmael, with his son, with his brother Isaac, teasing him. He has nothing of the heart of Jonathan. You know, Jonathan, King, Dave, King Saul's son, who is supposed to be the next in line to be king. And God says, it's not going to be you, it's going to be David. And Jonathan goes, whatever the Lord wills is right. There's no heart like John the Baptist when all of his disciples begin to follow Jesus. And John the Baptist goes, he becomes greater, I become less. That's the heart Esau should have had. Is that God is bringing redemption into the world. And God is choosing my brother instead of me. Praise God that redemption is in the world. No. I want my dad's stuff, and I'm going to kill my brother to get it. I don't care. That's the heart of Esau. So, what about you? How do you respond when someone else gets a gift that you thought you should get? That's what reveals the heart of, the, of a Pharisee, is that Jesus was being gracious to sinners, and the Pharisees were losing their minds. Because we're supposed to get that. We've earned it. That's ours. 
So whenever free grace is given to somebody, that's when the heart of the Pharisee, the heart of Esau comes out. Praise God that his redemption comes to anyone. And his grace comes to anyone. Esau can't see it. Conversation number five. We are getting close to the end, I promise. Conversation five, Rebecca and Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older brother, older son were told to Rebecca, this threat to kill him. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. That's what gives him, that, that's what pleases Esau, is murder and revenge and anger. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. She said that before. <laughs> now, son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran. Stay with him for a little while until my, your brother's fury turns away. Until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. <laughs> what you have done to him. It's amazing. And I will send and I will bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of both of you in one day? So she knows the relationship's fractured. She knows everything's broken. Jacob's all she has left. Run to Laban. He'll take good care of you. The family is totally imploded. Rebecca convinces him to flee for a while, but he's going to end up with Laban for 20 years and Rebecca will never see him again. Rebecca will die before she sees her son come back. Her precious son. And she'll be stuck with this husband that she deceived. And this son, Esau. Isaac and Rebecca live a good time longer, but they're basically irrelevant to the story at this point. The story will now follow Jacob for the rest of the book. It kind of ends with this somber note of this family imploding. And nobody looks good. Conversation 6, Rebecca and Isaac. Then Rebecca said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? So she knows, this is, this is, she knows that she doesn't want Jacob becoming like Esau. And she knows that it was right when the servant, Abraham's servant, sent for Rebecca and Rebecca came so that he wouldn't, marry the Canaanite women locally and so we're going to send Jacob and he's going to go marry some of the family and Jacob agrees no more Hittite women, we're done with that and he goes to Laban so we'll pause the story there and pick it up with Jacob and his journey on out to Laban but just a few applications as we finish first, dysfunctional families destroy lives right? Functional families destroy lives. I think we just need to be honest about that. When we begin to go our own way, look out for our own interests instead of the interests of others, we break stuff and we break people. That's not just out there among the bad people. That's the people of faith, right? This is the people of promise. It's not just those out there. That's us we have the capability of totally destroying our lives and our families. Leo, Leo Tolstoy, who's a 19th century Russian writer, wrote a classic book called Anna Karenina. It's huge. It's a big, long story. He starts his book off with this. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. There's some common factors with families that are healthy, like trust, communication, selflessness, a respect for God's word, a respect for one another. 
But when it gets dysfunctional and we begin to do our own thing, it goes berserk in a million ways, right? Happy families are all alike. There's the same basic qualities of what God has designed a family to be that are in common with all healthy families. Dysfunctional families can go, it's when everybody starts to try to do their own thing, serve themselves, right? Number two, dysfunctional families cannot, have not, will not thwart the purposes of God. That's good news. For those of you, all of us come from dysfunctional families on one level or another, but just know, it doesn't thwart the plan of God. It doesn't mean there can't be redemption. Everybody's screw up in this, and God will continue his plan. This did not thwart the redemptive plan of God. God somehow was able to even use the bad things that had happened. Look at this, Hebrews 11.20. This is mind-blowing when you think of just how jacked up Isaac is in this whole thing, how poorly he's led his family. And yet somehow, through Isaac, the purpose was accomplished. And look at Hebrews 11.20's verdict on this whole thing. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Isn't that crazy, the grace of God? That in the ledger of faith and not faith, God in his kindness is going to log this in the faith category for Isaac. Because in the end, even in the midst of deception, somehow God's purposes. And God in his kindness goes, let's still call that faith. Close enough. Just a mustard seed of faith. God will take even just that little bit of Isaac. He did get the blessing passed on and by faith. Now that's not an excuse for us to go and just do things however we want, but it is to show the kindness of God that in the grand scheme of things, by faith, Isaac passed the blessings on as he was supposed to to Jacob and Esau. This whole idea of how people can do sinful things and God still work a redemptive plan, we see this in Acts chapter 4 verses 27 and 28. Talking about the crucifixion of Jesus, Peter says this, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate to do evil things, to destroy the one perfect human being in all the world. He was healing people. He was causing people to see. He was fixing things, and they could not handle it. So they killed him. Humanity killed their good creator when he came to redeem them at the crucifixion, the most wicked thing people could ever do. And look at what it says, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand, God, and your plan had predestined to take place. The crucifixion of Jesus was the most wicked thing to ever happen. And the greatest thing to ever happen. Was it done by the wicked scheming of man? Yes. Was it done by the plan of God to save us? Yes. God can use the dysfunctional, sinful actions of people to work out good. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to his purpose. Number three, your five senses will deceive you, but God's word will never deceive you. Isaac got off track when he began to follow his gut, trust his eyes, his hands, his nose. They all deceived him. He was trusting in those things more than the oracles and the promise and the character of God. And that's true for us too. We'll either trust the word of God or we'll trust our own schemes, our own plans. Jesus himself said, in a one-to-one standoff with Satan, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. Jesus would not settle 
for just his five senses. Even Jesus himself walked by the word against his own hunger, his own, all the things that Satan used to tempt him. Jesus shows us the way. Isaac shows us the off way. I read this by theologian A.W. Pink. I just want to reflect on this for just a moment. Many of the lessons illustrated and exemplified in the above incident, we can do little more than name a few of the most important. So just lessons we can learn. One, how many today are like Esau, bartering divine privileges for carnal gratification? Number two, beware of doing evil that good may come. Number three, let us seek grace to prevent natural affections, overriding love for God and his revealed will. Number four, remember the unchanging law of sowing and reaping. You reap what you sow. Number five, learn the utter futility of seeking to foil God. And then this blew my mind when I read this. Finally, have we not here deeply hidden a deep, a beautiful picture of the gospel? Jacob found acceptance with his father and received his blessing because he was sheltered behind the name of the father's firstborn, his beloved son. And was he not clothed in his garments, which diffused to Isaac an excellent odor of his favored son? In like manner, we as sinners find acceptance before God and receive his blessing as we shelter behind the name of his beloved firstborn, Jesus Christ. And as we are clothed with his robes of righteousness, which we receive from him, thus coming before the Father in the merits of his Son, who he has given himself as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior. So you get sort of this photo negative of the gospel. Except that, and I think I got a slide here, just real, real quickly, we have an odd gospel connection in this passage. An undeserving son draws near and receives acceptance and blessing from a father at the expense of the firstborn son by being clothed in the garments of the firstborn. That's how we're saved as Christians. So just these last few points here, and I'll pray. Unlike Isaac, God is the father that desires to accept and bless us. We don't have to trick him into blessing us. We can draw near because he invites us to draw near. Jacob was afraid because his father hadn't invited him. His father doesn't approve of him. But God is different. God draws us near by his grace and desires to accept and bless you. Unlike Esau, Jesus, the perfect older brother, willingly exchanges, exchanges his blessing for the curse. He willingly gives his robes and his righteousness to anyone that will draw near. Unlike Jacob, you come to your father honestly, not lying, and humbly and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so that's my call to you today. We have this weird gospel picture. It's like a photo negative. You're not supposed to look too closely here, but you get this picture of receiving the blessing and the grace and the acceptance of God by being clothed in the garments of another. And so hide yourself in Jesus Christ. Draw near to your Father and receive his blessing. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time together. Long passage, so much here. And I pray, God, that we would learn these lessons that we need. I pray, God, that you would stir our hearts God, that we would draw near to the Father, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, not out of deception, not trying to trick you, humbly, honestly, because you already know who we are and you call us near. So God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for how you work through dysfunctional people, dysfunctional families to bring about redemption. And we pray that you...
Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.